Welcome to the Free Birth Podcast, a supportive space for people who are learning, exploring, and celebrating their autonomous choices in childbirth. Together, we'll unpack truths, share personal stories, and claim our ability to birth freely and intuitively. Here's your host, Emily Saldea. It's your calling to become an authentic midwife? Do you dream of attending women in birth? Have you felt frustrated trying to be a birth worker in the system? Are you looking for a better way to walk with women in total integrity, supporting mother-led physiological birth? Are you dreaming of building a thriving, profitable business as a birth coach? Well, we are thrilled to announce that enrollment for our Radical Birth Keeper School is now open. Classes begin June 1st, so head over to our website and get the details. The time is now, and we need you to join us in this birth revolution. www.radicalbirthkeeperschool.com on the show, who shares her story of leaving behind her doula career for something that felt more in alignment with her integrity, midwifery outside the system. Kate tells us the gorgeous story of the birth of her own daughter and how her radical birth work as a birth keeper informed her decisions to have the birth of her dreams. Right. I am excited for this episode today. I'm here with my friend Kate from Canada. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Kate from Canada. Canada. <laughs> that's, your, that's your title. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a part of this uh, thing I'm really excited about that I'm doing this Radical Birth Keeper series. Um, and so, uh, you know, the intention of it is to follow three different women in three different countries and get to know the stories of uh, how you came to be um, you know, kind of this title that we're all playing with, a radical birth keeper. Um, so if you do follow the show, you already probably know what that is. Um, and that's part of what we're going to get into today. So why don't you just start us wherever you want to start us at wherever the beginnings of your beginnings are of, um, and like I said, before we were recording, I actually don't know much of your story. So, you know, I don't know if you served in the system and then left, or if you've always been working, you know, more traditionally, um, so we're just going to do a deep dive today on Kate's story, and my hope is that it inspires many of you to know that there really are paths and options available to you if you are one of the frustrated birth workers in the system, um, that there really is a life uh, beyond it if you, if you want to find it. So yeah, hi, where do you want to start? Hey, amen to that. There is a life beyond it. I did work inside of the system. Um, 
So yeah, I am a radical breath keeper up here in Canada. I live on the East Coast in Nova Scotia. Um, I kind of, I cheekily go by the term midwitch because it feels cheeky and sassy and honest to me also. Um, yeah, my journey really started, I think, a long time ago. And one benefit that I had growing up, I think, is that my mom really talked about her birth experiences quite positively. She did have mm. a, quite a traumatizing first birth. Um, but her three births after that were, she described mostly as like quiet and peaceful and mm. just not really needing anyone to help her in any way. They were in hospitals, but it was just sort of very normal and not loaded with a lot of other stuff, which I think kind of set me up. Sure. Um, I grew up in a family that talked a lot about health and medicine. My dad is a doctor, actually. Um, so I grew up really interested in health and I've always navigated towards women. And so I was interested in women's health when I was in my early 20s. And this idea like someone like said midwife to me and it was like this awakening inside mm. of me like oh yeah I just remembered that that exists like mm -hmm. I had been thinking about medicine I had been thinking about obstetrics and gynecology it wasn't resonating with what oh I my God. about the can you imagine I can't even I would have been kicked out so fast yeah. it's just, <laughs> they would have fired. taken one look at you and just went no oh. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. So it, it was like, I'm interested in this thing, but I don't know, I don't, I don't know another framework for it outside mm -hmm. of medicine. And and medicine doesn't resonate with me, even just like watching my dad growing up and and his friends and colleagues and knowing about med school and all of that. So yeah, one day someone said, like, midwife, there's this midwife training. And yeah, it was like a light bulb. It was totally an awakening and a remembering that midwives exist, something else exists. Hmm. Um, and at that time, also, I was just out of university. Um, I was kind of like switching gears, not wanting to work in the field that I had studied in university. Um, and I started nannying for this really cool woman who had five kids. She was a family doctor and her husband was a doctor as well. But after the birth of her first son she had become totally disenchanted with the medical system left her practice and became a doula and mm. then went on to have four wow that's kids. a trip I know right? from doctor like, to doula that's a book right there doctor to doula like so cool um and so when we started chatting when I started working for her she said well if you're interested in midwifery you should try out being a doula you know like see what it's like going to birds see if you like being on call get to know kind of the insides of it and where I live um, we're lucky and there are some downfalls I think also to have this really well established volunteer doula program which is mm. like very cool has was totally groundbreaking when it started has been internationally recognized Hillary Marented is one of the women who started it and she's totally brilliant um, so I got to do this 12-week doula training for free in exchange for volunteering for this program. And so that gave me like an inside look kind of at what midwifery could be. How and many years ago are we at this point? At this point, we are, this was 2010. So 10 years okay. ago. Okay. Yeah. So I did this training and um, coming out of it, I volunteered 
for only volunteered at births for about a year and a half and all in hospital all in hospital um at the time we had in 2008 midwifery was regulated in my province um so at this point we had regulated midwives but at that time like a year and a half into my doula journey there was this stop hold put on the midwifery program here and no home births were being attended by midwives and we didn't actually have enough midwives to attend home births because they had quit been fired it's kind of a hostile work environment um so i was like oh man like this was kind of what i was Mm. driving towards like i'm putting in time in the hospital and eventually i'll have a name and maybe we'll get hired to be at these home births and then there was like a stop put on it so that was hugely disappointing. So I kept practicing in the hospital and started practicing privately, um, being hired by women to work in the hospital. But I just became so disenchanted with the system myself. And as I continued to study on my own, because I had this passion for women's health and birth and was drawn to home birth, I kept kind of studying on my own in those fields. And the more I learned, the harder it was to go to those hospital births because I was seeing the trauma that I was blind to before. I was seeing the lies that were being spun for these women. I was totally seeing how the experiences were being reframed and how the internalized misogyny was just like really playing out heavily in that field. So three years into that journey, I said, no more, I won't do mm. it. Um, and I'm done with this. Um, Tell me more actually, about that. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say actually before that, um, I had applied to midwifery school. So midwifery in Canada, um, their four-year university programs, you have to have an undergrad to get in. Um, so it's lots of school and they're heavily medical in their curriculum. I had applied to a midwif university midwifery program. And at the same time that my interview was happening for that program, there was a release put out in BC on the opposite coast of where I live in Canada. Um, and the release came from the College of Midwives and it said something, I'm totally paraphrasing, but it said something along the lines of, it's irresponsible to hire a traditional birth attendant instead of a regulated midwife. Right, we don't make money off of that. Exactly, <laughs> ladies, hire regulated midwives. And this was no, my- we're in control. <laughs> exactly, we manage that, us our territory. And so this, when I like read that headline, I again was awakened to this idea. Like I thought that a midwife was a traditional birth attendant. Mm. I wasn't aware of an underground movement at that point. I wasn't aware that there was a difference. I wasn't aware of this like regulation struggle that had been right. going on for a long time. And so that headline totally opened my eyes to that struggle of regulated midwifery. So I, I didn't get into the midwifery program anyway, and it was a blessing because at that point I was like, I can't do this at all anymore. Like, what's the, what's the end game? I don't want to be a doula going to hospital births. There are no home births happening right. in the province where I live that I know of, no home births happening in quotes, right? Um, and I don't want to be a midwife because look- Because it's all a lie. It's a lie. Right, exactly. It's, it's like they say it's apples, but really it's oranges. Exactly. Yeah. So at that point I was like, I'm done. I proclaimed, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sad. Yeah. You know, it was like, 
a passion. It was, it felt like I worked a full-time job on the side of volunteering for years and then also worked a full-time job on the side of taking very little money to attend birds. And I cared so deeply about the women. I, I felt that the work was so important, but I knew that I couldn't handle it anymore. My heart, my psyche, it wasn't in alignment with me and I couldn't do it anymore. And that felt so sad. How did you navigate? I mean, if it came up, cause it's something that definitely has for me and, and many, many doulas that I know, how did you kind of navigate that shift out of, um, you know, but at least I'm there at least she has somebody to hold her hand and to witness her, that hero persona that we're all trained to be, not just as women, but then double downed on in a doula training and in doula culture. How did you kind of navigate what for so many women, so many doulas I talk to, they are so willing to continue on in this messed up dynamic because they feel so guilty and they're, yeah, they're like basically willing to frame it as I'll take it. I'll keep going because I'm, she deserves somebody. How did you kind of, did you deal with that? I think it happened kind of quickly for me because I had one particular experience at a birth that was so awful. I really felt like I didn't help in any way. Right. I I was there beside her. I did hold her hand. I did like yell no to the doctor who cut the cord of her baby, the umbilical cord immediately as she was saying no. You know, like I was there, but I could see afterwards I didn't help in any way. I had no no way to help. I had no agency being there in that system. Um, and it was just such a fight. And then... Mm. It really like I was waking up in like from my sleep in flashbacks to the birth, but like mm. fantasy flashbacks of like what I would do to those doctors if like, you know, I wouldn't be charged with assault or something like that, <laughs> you know, like throwing people across the room in my dreams, actually. And that's when I was like, I realized I can't do this because I'm, I'm not going to be mentally well enough to go into these situations anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So then how does that shift your practice? You you withdraw from volunteering. Yep. And and what happens? I withdrew from volunteering. Um when women got in touch, I said, I'm so sorry, I'm not attending births anymore. And then um, you know, like I said, it it was like an awakening when midwifery first came into my psyche, back into my psyche. And and then again, eventually you know, one really persistent woman who I met and had a great connection with who was pregnant with her third baby was like, well, I really want to um, encapsulate my placenta. And no one that I knew was making placenta remedies at the time. And I was like, I, I don't know how to do that. And she was like, please be at my birth. Um, and please, like, will you process my placenta? I totally, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. She was like, I totally trust you. Just do it. You, you've got this. And that, it was that connection with a woman that brought me back in, you know, mm -hmm. a strong and powerful woman who had given birth at home twice already and was mm. like, I'm, I feel very confident. And this birth was actually in a hospital. Um, and it was- Why? 
it, there was this stop hold on home birth, no regulated midwives, right? And she didn't know of any underground midwives. Okay. And she so wouldn't she, birth without one. Yeah. She didn't want to okay. birth without one. So she's, she had a regulated midwife. They were going to go to the hospital. You know, she walked to the hospital. I met her there. Her baby was born in a couple of hours and she tried to walk home and they wouldn't let her. Well, so she had her mother come and pick her up actually with a borrowed car seat so that they would let her leave. And then I had her placenta. And so I, I dove into like, how do I process this placenta and found a really cool woman in my province who I didn't know who was making placenta remedies. And she was really generous and shared knowledge with me so openly um, in a way that I had not encountered with regulated midwives. Hmm. And it felt so open. And then just searching on the internet, I processed this placenta. And then I thought, this can be my offering. I won't attend births anymore. I don't want to go back into the hospital anymore, but this making placenta remedies can be my offering to the women in my community. And so I like became the placenta lady here in Halifax for a long time and was, you know, processing a lot of placentas, sometimes like two, three placentas a week. It got busy. And that became my offering to the community for about a year and a half until I had another calling, an even deeper calling, another woman. And again, it was just like, meeting a really rad woman who I had a deep connection with right from the start and who this time was like, I'm going to give birth at home by myself. You might as well just come Mm -hmm. make me tea, be Mm -hmm. here. (laughs) I like you just come. I'll pay you. You know, she was like, just so persistent. I'll pay you. Come like, what are you, come on. So it was this next calling, deeper Mm -hmm. calling all these like layers of deeper and deeper callings in this work that just seems to deepen over all of the years, continually, even now. And uh, that birth was really, the connections I made through that birth were really what um, were like the catalyst into where I am now. And was it obvious for you to say yes to that? Or were you like, no, no. Or was it like, oh my God, I've been waiting for someone who wants to just do her thing. Yeah. It was like, you know, the full body. Yes. That you describe. It was like, I can't say no. I have to say yes. So tell me about that dynamic a little bit more. How, how did, how did you know in your own body that she could be trusted and that she wasn't going to blame you if there was a bad outcome? And how did you navigate all the stuff that we know doulas and midwives fear so much? Totally. Um, I don't know if I had any like tangible indications of that stuff other than my gut feeling. And there was just obvious trust, obvious trust and obvious trust resonating from this woman, like radiating from this woman. And she had given birth once before with traditional midwives in Hungary. Um, So she felt very confident, you know, in her own, birthing ability it was more just like I don't want to be alone you know my husband's not going to make the tea right (laughs) come on and it wasn't like I need you right it wasn't I need you it was I would prefer to have someone there with me gosh what a difference huh huge difference yeah it wasn't I need someone to catch the baby I need someone there if there's a shoulder dystocia I need someone there if there's a hemorrhage it was just like it's good to have sisters around yeah and then And how did, so that's your first birth without a medical provider, right? 
It was. And through that birth, so I said yes. And then I said, I said yes. And I know about these, I've heard about these traditional midwives in New Brunswick, where our neighboring province, where there isn't regulation on midwifery. And I would love to like get in touch with one of them. And like maybe there's some way for her to support this birth as well. And I could learn from her because I don't really, you know, at the time I was like, I don't know anything. So I did get in touch with one of these traditional birth attendants in New Brunswick. She ended up um, being on that journey with me and that woman. And she's the woman who I ended up apprenticing with for a year and a half after that. That birth was like, it felt like a really potent initiation into this work. Um, it didn't go how any of us thought that it would. Um, the, the mother, so healthy, like so vibrant, so beautiful. Um, one of my best friends now, her baby actually ended up dying at 38 weeks in utero. Aww. And she gave birth to her two days later. Oh, at home. She gave birth in the hospital. We didn't know at the time what to do with the body of an infant. Wait, so how did she know the baby had passed? She stopped feeling her move. And she had this feeling that something was off. Her belly started to feel heavy. She described it as a dead weight. Um, so after about a day of, you know, drinking coffee, drinking orange juice, doing some movement stuff, Aww. and still not feeling anything, she went into the hospital and had an ultrasound done and now there was no heartbeat. And then was induced? She received, yeah, one dose of Cytotec. She went home. She skipped this. They wanted her to come back in, you know, six hours later or whatever. She skipped it, um, stayed home and induced further with some herbs and then went into labor at home and went back to the hospital a couple of hours before the baby was born. Was there an open discussion around why not birthing at home with a woman who was so comfortable doing it with a live baby? Yeah, I was so grateful for that. I wouldn't have known how to have that conversation, you know, and I do think at that time in my practice, I wouldn't have even approached the conversation. But because this experienced traditional birth attendant was with us, she did say, you know, you can do this at home, you don't have to go into the hospital. But for that mother at the time, I think it really felt like what am I going to do with my baby's body mm -hmm. after they're born? Like how, what do I do like, after Even that? logistically, yeah. Logistics. The logistics were the hang-up. Mm. Which now has, you know, it, that also was a catalyst to learning more about like yeah. okay, what are our rights in this area? Yeah. How do we deal with these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember learning when I lived in California because um, I, I ran a nonprofit that gave support to women having non-live birth outcomes. So it was largely supporting abortion, but but also often stillbirth. And I remember being so struck with realizing that it is within a parent's legal rights to uh, not only birth the child at home, but also to bring the child home after the hospital. But that like, if you do go into the hospital for the birth, that it is your legal right to bring your baby home. Um, but it has to be facilitated by a funeral director. Like the handoff has to be facilitated by a licensed funeral director, but that nobody gives that option. And so, so many women experiencing loss in the system are told that the only way is 
baby's out, you get some time with baby, and then it goes to the coroner, and then it's prepped mm-hmm. for for a service. Um, mm-hmm. And just oh, how it was so gutting to learn that that wasn't actually that there were actual options and that you could have in-home funerals and in-home services and that there's all these ways to keep um, the body cool in the home so that it slows down the, you know, decomposing so that you can be with Mm. the baby for a couple days and just all these, you know, other ways that might be more um, in alignment with what the parents wanted, but they're not even given those options anyway. Course. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, these things that we never even think about, right? Until we're faced with the situation and then we have no idea mm. where to go. Yeah, having resources for these. Yeah, and it just really, I mean, it bonded the three of us together really strongly. Um, it also, yeah, like I said, felt like this huge initiation like, okay, so you want to do this work. If you're going to be involved with birth in its raw power, you are going to be involved with death in its raw was, power. This was your first death? This was the, my first death. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow. So it not only was your first death, but it was also your first birth outside the system. Exactly. At the same time. At the same time. Wow. Well, no, I mean, it wasn't outside the system eventually, but it right. was intended to be and then shifted. Exactly. Yeah. Big initiation. That's a great word for it. Huge. And... Um, yeah, it catapulted this apprenticeship that I did with this great traditional birth attendant. And, you know, of course, like the next birth that we went to together, it was like the other side. It was kind of like, okay, you had your initiation and now here's, we're going to throw you a bone, like beautiful fourth baby born at home in a farmhouse in the rural countryside. And we sat in the hallway until there was something for us to do, like make tea or scrambled eggs, right? <laughs> like just so perfect. Um, and the apprenticeship was great. It, I think like I get a lot of, now I get a lot of um, requests and interest in apprenticeships, women wanting to apprentice with me. And um, I always feel like there's sort of this expectation, like there will be lots of births. Like I'll be going to a birth every week. And, um, (laughs) you know, my apprenticeship was nothing like that. We went to over the course of a year and a half, like, you know, less than a dozen births together. Um, yeah, six, seven births, something like that. The, the women who choose this are few and far between. And so it's not a busy, busy thing, but being at those births taught me so, so much just witnessing the women quietly from the hallway or from the far side of the room. Um, and in the aftermath glory of their powerful births, making them food and seeing the excitement of their kids and mm-hmm. watching their partners transform. And, and then also after leaving the houses, sitting and having debriefs about the birth with Uh, the woman I was apprenticing with, you know, I just learned in that year and a half, like so much more than I learned in three years of attending birds in the hospital. It's unfathomable. So Mm -hmm. different. Um, Yeah. So different. And then, yeah, after about a year and a half, eventually those birds, the birds that I attended during the apprenticeship, um, interestingly enough, were mostly women having their like third, fourth, fifth baby. And then after that year and a half, when women started, when I started attending births by myself outside of the system, 
most often it was first time mom. So it was <laughs> like this new territory. Yeah, again. <laughs> super new. Totally. Yeah. But does it ever end? Never. Like, it's always new territory in so many ways. New territory, always new territory. And I have found, you know, like even 10 years into this birth journey, seven years into this outside the system birth journey and radical birth keeping, still in this past year, I felt like another new initiation happened. You know, I really like how Sister Morningstar is one of my teachers and she puts it really well. The village midwife is involved in the births, the deaths, and everything in between. It's mm-hmm. not just a couple prenatal meetings and a birth and dropping off a meal afterwards. And yeah, I really felt that this past year when a family I had journeyed with through birth twice had a, a huge sudden loss in their family, a death, and I was called in again in a new capacity to... It wasn't the child that died? No, it wasn't the child that died. It was the father that died. Mm. Um, and it was this new journey of being alongside those women as they went through this other transition. Mm. So it's just like, it's beautiful. So ever evolving. Well, and it's one of the most offensive reductions of midwifery that we've seen happen in, in obstetrical midwifery, that it is seen and created and, and sold to women as a very, very, very compartmentalized role that you just do some prenatals and, you know, are there for the birth, you know, and usually not for much of the birth, just like doctors. And, uh, and then you do a couple postpartum visits if it's a home birth midwife, which now are getting even more few and far between and, and that's it. You're done. Call me again when you're pregnant again. You know, there's no, yeah, there's no village element to it. They're not calling them when there's other things going on. Like that's such a, a beautiful, um, a beautiful way to highlight one of the many differences of authentic midwifery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the conscious conception journey, there's so Mm -hmm. much there, the, the awakening into our fertility journey. There's so much there, the transitions out of breastfeeding, you know, like throughout motherhood. Um, So how does this, how does this go on to influence what then becomes your turn? to become a mother? Um, yeah, my turn to become a mother. I gave birth to my daughter almost two years ago. She'll be two in May. Um, I think I just felt so lucky because I had put in, you know, five or six years at that point of being really dedicated to building sisterhood and community here and witnessing powerful birth and, the freedom that that gave me from like, my vision was clear, you know, when I got pregnant or when I set out to get pregnant, there was never a question in my mind of what kind of care I would receive or, you know, if I would get testing done or anything like that, just kind of what my journey would be like. It felt like a really integrated part of my life. Like this will be a continuation. So I got pregnant and, um, yeah, that, you know, first trimester, blah, awful. <laughs> I was attending births. I was so tired. You were? I was. Ooh, <laughs> I could not have done that. It was Ooh. a challenge. Yeah, well. <laughs> it was a challenge. Um, I would attend with a second person, so there was help there. Um, I rested a lot. My circle got even tighter. Um, you know, 
all that I said about um, I was prepared and there wasn't a doubt in my mind of how my journey would um, how I would make choices along my journey doesn't mean I was exempt from like all the fears you know I still have oh, of the course crazy like this is what I'm doing I'm not going to see a doctor I'm not like I'm not going to get any testing I'm just going to always bed my, again today. <laughs> my joke about my pregnancy is that like every couple of days, Johnny would come home from work and I would be like, I am positive my baby doesn't have a face. Yeah. yeah. Like I oh, would yeah. just be like, oh, I got total <laughs> clarity today. The baby's definitely <laughs> fucked up, you know? Got a tail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just, yeah, that work of being like, and, and yep. so yeah, maybe. Maybe. Exactly. And it is work. And I do think it's, it's not just, sometimes it's kind of like received when people hear these stories, like, oh, wow, she's so lucky. That's so lucky. You're so lucky that everything went fine. But I really don't think it's just luck. Like it's work. It takes work. It took a lot of meditation every single day. Um, it took a lot of self-reflection. It took a lot of like checking in. Okay. Am I just scared right now? Do I actually feel that something is right. wrong? Like how to distinguish between yeah. fear and intuition. And that is uh, such a confusing untangling for so many people because who's, who's taught that growing up? Exactly. We're taught like y- you won't be able to distinguish. So go with like something's wrong and just get it. And you, out. and you definitely don't know anything about your own body. Yeah, exactly. So, so what choices did you make did you see a midwife? What, what was no. it like? Um, I didn't see a midwife. I didn't see any doctors. I see an herbalist. So I saw my herbalist every once in a while to pick up herbs. Um, yeah, herbal plant allies were a big um, part of my journey, like especially nutrition, that, that prenatal care that I was offering to myself. Um, nutrition played a huge part in that. I had a really strong and steady meditation practice every single day. I was meditating. Um, movement practice was really big for me. Um, I didn't have any medical testing done. You know, I carried on with life. I continued to go to what was appealing. Like I said, my circle did get smaller. Um, I didn't want to go to as many social gatherings kind of naturally. I did want to hang out with mothers Mm-hmm. I wanted to hang out with them and their kids. Um, I went to women's song circles. That was a big part mm-hmm. of my nutrition. And how did you singing. how did you assemble your your birthing team? Um, so my birthing team, I had just two of my closest friends. Um, you know, actually, I should say along that journey, my plan, original plan was, well, of course, the woman I apprenticed with will be right. my midwife. She will have to be there. Um, and then halfway through my pregnancy, she was going through a lot of personal stuff in her life and it became really clear that she wouldn't be able to be at my birth. And I totally went through this, like, so like such a victim of this situation mentality, like poor me, like, where's my midwife? I'm the midwife for people and I have no midwife. Boohoo. And that, it was so strong that I had to really sit with it and ask myself, what is she going to offer me at the birth mm-hmm. that I am feeling such a victim of missing out on? What is it? But it's so legit, you know, yeah. it, it is. And I know everyone gets so confused about this, but it's so, so primal to crave a, a spiritual guide through, through a new experience. You know, that's so 
you know, and obviously this easily spins us into the conversation of uh, authentic midwifery and the need for authentic midwifery and the work of authentic midwifery versus the the just lie of you know obstetrical midwifery and and the lie that it that it you know sells to women but it is so so understandable and so normal and what most women crave you know whether they have the language for it or not um, you know, is a spiritual guide, you know, a female spiritual guide through this initiation into motherhood. Um, and it obviously gets super sabotaged because the air quotes spiritual guides now are like male perverts and like, just, you know, like it's so weird now what's happening. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so yeah, I mean, I hear you and that's, and that is the work of, and that's such a great question to ask, like, okay, she's not available. So how do we make it not about her, but rather what is the thing I was looking for and can I find it in another way? Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, she was such a natural choice because, and I think that natural choice often is someone who is like a mother figure. She's big familiar sister. to me, a big sister figure, like you know, she was the village midwife who I knew because we had established this comfort with each other. We knew each other. Uh, she was a teacher to me. Um, yeah, so much comfort there. There's so much comfort there. But yeah, in asking that question, I was able to say like, what's the essence of the support that I actually want with me? And um, it came down to sisterhood, wanting like sisters who I'm comfortable with and who have known me on my journey and who I want to continue to know me on my journey and know this part of it. Um, a desire to be witnessed. I really did want to be witnessed. And I think this is like hugely important in these rites of passage, these major transitions in our life where we move from one phase to another we're so lacking in our culture, the ceremony and the ritual around it that helps us then embody that new mm -hmm. role that we're going to play. And the community witnesses who are there to, to say, I saw you do that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I am here to say, yes, like you are in that role because you went through the fire. And to remember that story with you is so, exactly. so beautiful. And I think people, I know that people get very confused and miss interpret the concept of free birth as it's these weird women over here that want to be alone and unwitnessed. And obviously they're so, 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 so wrong. I don't know if I've ever met a woman who's, who has explicitly voiced, I want to be unwitnessed. I think a lot of women fantasize about what it would be to be alone. And of course mm -hmm. I know lots of women who have chosen to free birth truly alone. But to be honest, most of those women, um, it, it wasn't a choice from an abundance of support <laughs> and they yeah. still made that choice. It was from a deep lack of support. And so, you know, in embracing that, okay, you know, Mm -hmm. And it's different to fantasize about being alone or how many of us, you know, fantasize about a birth outside, but very few women actually choose that, totally. um, which is not a judgment call. It's just kind of what winds up happening most yeah. of the time as we tend to den up, you know, in our, in our rooms or our bathrooms. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so, so you were able to find and call in the sisters of trust that, that were there to witness you. Yeah, they... Yeah, they stepped right up and it was just so clear once I asked them, like, of course, these two women, like, it'll be so perfect. I had been 
Um, one was the original woman who I said her her birth that really like catalyzed my entrance into oh, traditional midwifery nice. and was my introduction to the woman I apprenticed with. She was at the birth. The and one who another, lost the baby. The one who lost the baby, yeah. Wow. And another really good friend who I was the first person who came over to her house after she gave birth, you know, in power outside of the system. And and we have this really strong sisterhood and it just made so much sense you know we meet for moon circles why not have my moon circles right, right, like right, they're my right. coven they're gonna cool. be at my birth uh-huh yeah so that was perfect and you know they were game for what I wanted really what I wanted was like the nurturing the um someone to be able to hand me the cup of tea you know and clean up after the birth and like look at my husband if he's feeling uneasy and just like give the calm reassuring look and because they had given birth in this way on their own they had that trust in it and so they were just the perfect sisters to come and you know, wield no authority whatsoever and not imagine that they knew better than me in any way, but be able to just offer me tender love and care. So how did it go? Ha, it went so <laughs> great. <laughs> it honestly went just like exactly as I had imagined and manifested throughout the end of my pregnancy. I really had this like fantasy that I would just carry on with my life as normal until I absolutely couldn't. And then I would, you know, lay in my bed at some point and get in the tub at some point and get in the birth pool at some point and just give birth to my baby. And it would happen at night. And it really unfolded like that. I mean, in the last few weeks of pregnancy, I found I was very dreamy and spacey and totally like I could feel that I was entering another realm. You know, like we would go on walks in the woods and I'd be like, the trees are literally talking to me. Like their, their <laughs> spirits are just showing themselves. And Hell yeah. To me. <laughs> and like, That's awesome. Everything is so vibrant. And um, in my home, like every single day for months leading up to the birth, I was seeing these tiny fairy beings. <laughs> all over the house you know it started as like oh, I don't think that's what I actually saw it was probably a giant fly out of the corner of my eye but then it was like no I'm actually seeing these beings out of the corners of my eye all every day at least once a day and um so when I went into labor I was kind of <laughs> I was in a very dreamy state um I my husband was off work already it was great um, we went out to the farmer's market. We went to like two farmer's markets. I went to a crafters. Multiple people told me that day. I was 38 weeks and five days from conception at this point. And lots of people were like, you're not going to have that baby for a month. Like you're just too comfortable. You're too happy. You're walking all over town. You know, like the silly things that people say at the end of pregnancies. And that's generous to call this. <laughs> yeah. It was. You're right. <laughs> that was really nice. <laughs> um, but I felt good. I felt so happy and content, and I did feel strong. I, you know, went for a three k hike the day before, and but thirty eight weeks from conception means forty. So, like from the yeah, other like, metric, you were like forty and five. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but feeling good. Mm -hmm. you know, really feeling good. And so I came home from um, the crafters and made love with my husband that afternoon. And literally right 
after making love, I was like, I think I have to take a shit. Like, oh, <laughs> that's so romantic. So <laughs> I was like, sorry, I gotta get out of bed right away. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and sat on the toilet and did not have to poop, but really like felt my baby drop into the pelvis right Mm. there. And like, I remember grabbing the towel bar and being like, whoa, whoa, yeah, this is different. And I had sensations right away. As soon as I stood up from the toilet, I started having contractions that were totally different than anything that I had felt, you know, little, little, whatever hints of contractions and preparations in the last few weeks. And um, they were every five minutes right from that get-go for the first few hours. And my husband was going out the door to go surfing. And I was on all fours in the living room being like, whoa, whoa, feeling my way into these new sensations. And he stopped at one point and looked at me and was like, wait, like, should I be going surfing? What's, are you in labor right now? What's going on? And I, because I had this fantasy of carrying on with my life until I absolutely could. And I was like, it's fine. Go to, and I was like in this really dreamy state. I was like, go surfing. It's, I'm fine. The and fairies I, got me. <laughs> I'm here with the fairies. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and I had actually dinner plans that night to have dinner with the two women I had asked to be at my birth. And funny enough, the woman who I had originally apprenticed with, who was in town for 16 hours, and we were having dinner with her. Cute. So I said, go ahead, you know, my ladies are picking me up for dinner. Don't surf for too long. Keep your phone on you. I'm fine. (laughs) Bye. So he left because he'll take any opportunity to go for a surf. And I went to dinner and, you know, my sensation spaced out to about seven minutes apart, maybe eight minutes apart, something like that. But... (laughs) I didn't tell anyone. I love what I love keeping secrets to myself. <laughs> like, whoa! I just love it. And like, I didn't even tell my husband I was pregnant for a week. And after I knew, I told him. Whoa! Yeah, I just that is love. like the opposite of my personality. <laughs> wow, Scorpio South Node. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, so. I, yeah, throughout dinner, it just was kind of like, you know. With your birth attendant. With my birth attendant. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Eating my buttered chicken and, um, yeah, kind of moving around on the chair. Like, ooh, I'm getting, okay, I'm not comfortable like this anymore. I got to move on. I got to get like that. And um, I got up to do the dishes at the end and was washing some dishes. And at one point while I was washing the dishes, I was just like, what am, what am I doing? I can't focus on doing these dishes anymore. I don't want to do these dishes anymore. This is stupid. I got to get out of here. I got to go home. And so at that point I told, I went to pee and then I came back out and my mucus plug had released when I went to pee, I realized, cause there was like a little bit of brownish, dark red, you know, blood mucus, mucus plug stuff going on. So I came out and told them, everybody get some sleep. I'm going to go home. I will be calling you later tonight. I suspect I'm in labor. You know, and then they're like, one's like, what? And one's like, I knew it. And one's like, you wore lipstick. You never wear lipstick. I knew something was different. Um, So they all had their kind of suspicions, you know, and um, I got a ride home. And at that point, my sensations were every five to four minutes apart, I got home and my husband was back from surfing and I called him along the way to give him a heads up. And I came home and 
he like, you know, I had given him this list of things I wanted done, like take the beautiful organic cotton sheets off the bed and make my labor aid and things like that. So I came back and he was like doing dishes, laundry on the go, sheets off the bed, labor aid going, like just was in task mode. You know, he's a pilot. So he's like, give me a task and I'll just follow the protocol. Thank you very much. So he was in like protocol mode. Um, yeah. And I got in the bathtub and labored in the bathtub for a while. Um, that felt really nice. My sensations started to get really close together. Um, when they were like two minutes apart and I wasn't catching much rest in between them, I really wanted Sean, my husband beside me. And he was like, maybe I should call, like, should I call them? And even at that point, even though like all my experience in birth sensations are two minutes apart, I'm not catching much rest in between. When he called them, I was still like, but take your time you know, don't worry about getting here too fast. You're Is like, take your, take your time. Oh! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's hair, but no big deal. <laughs> don't worry about it. Just ahead. <laughs> um, so they were like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to come over. And at that point I got out of the tub and sat on the toilet and had a pee. And that was a really nice release for me. I had like just a cry, like just, I just like cried, 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 sitting on the toilet, Sean in front of me, leaning on his shoulder and let out just like, you know, the enormity of what I was feeling. Mm. Like, I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, holy shit, it's actually happening. I'm scared. Mm -hmm. Was the essence of it. And the cry was really good. Like that release just felt so nice. Um, And then I climbed in bed and at that point, I did want to be touched, so I wanted to just be like snuggled and spooned. Sean got in bed with me, and while we were in bed, the ladies arrived and they set up the birth pool and got it all filled up and topped up my teas. And I, my eyes were shut at this point, and but I remember each of them one at a time coming in my room and like sitting on the floor by my feet and just touching my feet while I went through some sensations or sitting on the floor beside me and passing me my tea or rubbing my back really gently. Um, I threw up too. So at one point, one of the women came in and, you know, she had a bowl for me and was like, no big deal, you know, just puke, just get it all out. Um, So it was like, it felt really tender and sweet when they showed up and I could sense that, they had come into my house, but they were just like, were quietly working, you know? And it, and it was, was just the so two nice. of them, not the woman you. It was the three of them. So okay. it ended up being my two friends who I had invited. And then, yeah, the woman who I had originally apprenticed with came as well. Cute. And yeah. that felt good. And it felt good. It felt really good. Um, yeah. So they got the birth pool ready. And while I was on the bed, then I was having a really hard time getting comfortable my sensations were like right on top of each other. I was totally in transition. I was like shaking. Um, my husband kept putting a blanket on me cause I was shivering and I kept throwing it off and I was like, no, no blanket. But you know, not saying like, I don't need a blanket. I'm yeah. in transition. It's just yeah. like, stop putting the blanket on me. It's like, I'm cold. No blanket. <laughs> I'm, I'm shivering. No blanket. No blanket. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and then 
the pool was ready. At this point, I had been in labor. My first sensation was at like four o'clock in the afternoon. At this point, it was like 1.30 in the morning. Um, and then I got into the birth pool around two o'clock in the morning. And that walk, like my, I live in a very small space and the pool was in our spare room across the hall. And that walk from my bed to the birth pool across the hall, which was like, I don't know, five meters, something like that. <laughs> was like I paused so many times in the walk yeah. and then like you know went to put a toe in the tub and got a sensation and was like on the floor and just in my mind in that moment was like I'll never get in the tub like it will just never happen I can never move again um <laughs> it's just like it felt so big yeah to make those small movements from the outside perspective um, yeah, so I stayed on the floor for a little bit right in front of my altar, which was, which was so great to be in front of my altar that I had meditated mm. that every single day in this pregnancy. Mm. And eventually I did get up and get in the birth pool. And that was like such a relief. I'm a water sign. I'm a Pisces and the water is such comfort for me. And it felt so good to be in there. And it felt like my zone, you know, and I hadn't originally asked Sean to get in but he got in the pool and, but he just kind of stayed on one side and I didn't really want to be touched or anything. Um, but I liked having him really close by. Uh, and the women were in the room and we would leave sometimes and get drinks or, you know, just take turns. So there weren't as many people in the room. And I moved through, through the next two hours of my labor in the pool. Um, Sometimes they sang, sometimes they owned, hmm. sometimes I wanted it quiet. Um, yeah. And then eventually I got this, like the most intense part of the birth for me was not when Ren came out. It wasn't when my daughter came out, but it was when I felt her drop from my pelvis into the birth canal. And I remember like leaning over the side of the pool for so long, but then at that point having to like get upright and like, whoo, and with my eyes closed, I didn't realize I was, I wanted to move. And I just like crawled in the pool and went to a spot. And I realized later that I had crawled to like the farthest corner in the room with my back facing everyone with my eyes closed. And that's where I wanted to be. And my water started bulging out. Um, I really wanted her to come down and I tried to break my waters with my fingers and like those suckers are, <laughs> they're hard. So it didn't work <laughs> the first time. Um, but on my next sensation, when they were really bulging out hard, I broke them with my fingernails. And after that, she came, her head was then coming out. She started crowning. Um, and once her head, once I could feel her head coming out of me, you know, it was maybe four or five sensations of it, like, you know, retracting a bit, coming down a little more, retracting a bit, coming down a little more. And then my body was already pushing. I had not consciously pushed at any point in the labor. At this point, my body was doing all of the pushing. And uh, um, yeah, two pushes. Once her head came halfway out, I thought to myself, I'm going to get behind the next one. I pushed once, her whole head came out. I pushed on the next sensation, her body came right out. And um, so she was born in the water and she kind of, I was leaning forward. She kind of started to float behind me and my husband knew that I wanted to be the first one to touch her. So he said, I didn't see this because he's behind me, but he says he was like shuffling the <laughs> water, like 
paddling the water so the baby would float. That's hysterical. <laughs> That's and so cute. Like, I wish I did. Yeah. So <laughs> like not and touching, just, not touching, <laughs> not touching her. I didn't touch her. Didn't. Um, yeah, and I just scooped her up and. She let out a little squawk and then a cry and then was quiet and just nursed right away. Mm. And I believe my first words were, holy shit. (laughs) Holy shit. Um, Yeah, it was great. They left me, you know, everyone kind of like left the room so that the three of us could be alone for a little while. And then I got out and had a bath and then climbed into bed. So good. They rubbed my feet and pulled on my wool socks and we had a little cord burning ceremony. And the next day, another woman came and gave me a massage and a closing mm. of the bone ceremony while another sister sang to me. Mm. And so sweet. So sweet. It was so beautiful. Oh. It was so simple. It was so straightforward. Yeah. So how has that informed your birth keeping since? I think the biggest impact that it's had on me is before giving birth, the parts of the journey that I saw as being really important, but that there really is no focus on in our culture, the ceremonies, the rituals, the mother blessings, the, um, the sisterhood circle that's there for you at the birth, the the postpartum village that shows up with meals, um, the first outing and like song circle or whatever you go to, the closing of the bone ceremony, um, a naming ceremony, whatever people choose to do, like these, the ritual and the ceremony is really missing. And I saw that it was very important before, but with clients, if they weren't totally on board with it, I was like, okay, we'll Mm -hmm. skip that stuff. It's okay. We don't have to incorporate it. And now after going through that journey and feeling what those rituals infused me with feeling what, how those ceremonies helped me to go through Mm -hmm. the transition to integrate and like integrate it and embody the new role of being a mother, the new status in society, the new responsibilities, the new um, privileges. It's like, now it's just not an option for me with my clients. I'm like, this is what we do. I'd like, that's <laughs> a huge part of what I do. If you're hiring me, you want ritual, you want ceremony. I'm going to want, sing to you. <laughs> I'm definitely going to sing to you. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to rub your feet. You're not getting out of it. <laughs> I'm sure there's been very little resistance to that. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be sung to and have their feet rubbed? <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's such a good point. It's, I, I really, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that a lot of women and newer birth attendants um, and just women in general have this real programmed sense of not wanting to impose and not wanting to, uh, you know, it's like, let the mother lead, let the mother lead. And yes, of course, let the mother lead. It's her life, of course. And know what you bring to the table and and embody the role of the midwife, you know, of the shamanic guide, you know, like really do it, let yourself have it. And it doesn't have to be song. If you, if you don't relate to song, it can be something else, but the tenets of womanhood, the tenets of sisterhood are largely rooted in things like song and touch and, and, you know, gathering and meal and cooking and cleaning. And I mean, some really like core 
tenants, not as like a gendered oppressive thing, but as a, you know, women gather, we cook for each other. We clean each other's homes. We, we tend to each other's mm-hmm. children. We, we touch each other. We sing to each other. And yet we don't actually do that. But when we do do it, and now we have to do it in these, like, here's a retreat. You're going to go do this for seven days or, you know, whatever. And then that's fine. And that's beautiful. And that <laughs> is what we're like all trying to reclaim. Um, but yeah, that, that element of, owning what you bring to the table and that part of what you bring to the table as you become this embodied mother and birth attendant Mm. is to say, this is actually a part of what I'm helping guide you back into and really to own that space because we do all want that from each other, but we don't really know how to ask for it. And so we, as the birth attendants or the doulas or the midwives or the postpartum doulas, whatever role we're taking on, um, instead of 100% deferring to the mom, it's actually quite important that we really learn and embody this, the, the beautiful like woman, womanhood skill sets that we do all have and not be afraid to really bring them and offer them, not in like a weird pushy way, of course. And I know like everyone's so afraid of being pushy or, you know, well, I'm going to wait to be invited over. And it's like, yeah, but like no one's going to mind you putting a lasagna on their front step and sending a text, like find the way, do the thing, do it, you know? Exactly. While you're having the conversation about what a woman wants in her postpartum healing, rub her feet, touch her hair. Make the first move, like be like, this is how it can be. And no one's going to ask you, will you rub my feet? (laughs) Like- Exactly. But if you say, can I rub your feet? She's going to say, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it is, it's such a different journey to going through your pregnancy and birth journey in the medical system. It just is completely different. It is not hiring a radical birth keeper, hiring a birth attendant outside of the system is not just finding someone outside of the system who you're more in line with to be the authority that shows up at your birth as a medical professional would. Right. Doing it, doing it wrong. It's finding, <laughs> yeah. Doing it wrong. <laughs> That's not what we want to do here. It's such a different journey. It's, it's finding that person who will be your companion along your journey. It's saying yes to sisterhood. It's saying yes to sisterhood, totally. And sisterhood isn't always like, okay, whatever you want. Okay, whatever you want. Sometimes it's like, well, let's go for a walk while we have this talk because like, let's get out of the house. Sometimes it's saying, I'm, I would love to just gather your sisters together and organize a blessing for you. Right. Being empowered together. Taking charge. Yeah. Being empowered together and yeah, having that confidence in ourselves and knowing our skill sets and knowing what resonates and works for us so that we can then share that with the women who resonate with us. Right. I think, yeah, I think I I coach a lot of new birth workers who are trying to find their place in all of this. And it seems like a really common theme is that they are afraid to speak or afraid to do anything at, with, at, because they are afraid that it's somehow going to take away the woman's authority. Mm. And, and I understand the point, like I get what they're saying. Um, and yet people don't want us to be at births to be silent. You know, people want me at a birth because they trust me that I'm going to 
speak up and move and shift and act in a way that is in integrity with the space. And a huge lesson that I've really come to know in the last couple of years is um, that to be in integrity with myself, first and foremost, absolutely means speaking up. Mm-hmm. you know and 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 the most important piece to that is knowing that i'm in enough trust with this woman that when i speak up it comes with no expectation that they're going to listen to me but i can't not speak up you know i've been to bursts where i've said i just have to say this if this were me given what is happening i would transfer i just i need to say that so that it's been said so that i'm in integrity with myself um, now, whatever you want to do, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm with you, you know, and that's the piece that I think in all of this talk of reclaiming sisterhood that we need to actually practice in and out of the birth room. You know, just like if a friend is in an abusive relationship, I would say, look, I just, to be in integrity with myself, I need to voice that I am seeing these things. They concern me, you know, blah, 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 blah. If it were me, blah, blah, blah. And it's your life. And so both can happen at the same time. And, and that's where I think, yeah, we just, we need more practice as sisters of that speaking that, like you said, being, being tight and being in trust and being sisters does not mean that we're yes women. It actually means the opposite of that. It means that we are all bringing ourselves completely to our friendships and to our spaces. And, and there's no denying. And actually, I think it could be quite dangerous to deny the fact that if someone's inviting you into their birth, um, it's, it's because they have a deep trust in you and that they very likely see you as an expert in the birth landscape. And so to be in integrity with that and to be in responsibility with that um, means you have to get really right with who you are in that room. And to act like you aren't a really powerful presence is to deny this truth mm-hmm. and the sensitivity of the space. And that doesn't equal that you're the decision maker. But like you said, it might mean, all right, girlfriend, get, yeah. get out of the tub. Get out of the tub. This totally. is getting stale. I, I'm going to say something here. And of course she can look at me and say, no, yeah. I don't want to get out of the tub. It happens But to usually me it's like, <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. I I love when women say no, because they should know that of course they can. But at the same time, I'm also not, if something's moving through me to say, babe, mm-hmm. get up. You've been laying because you're avoiding what's about to happen. Go on the toilet. Your water's going to break. There's a baby to be born. It's going to be okay. I'm with you. Let's do this. Totally. That is actually the sisterly thing to do. And we can't be afraid you know, to say stuff because speaking is not taking away someone's oh. authority. That's not the same thing, but there's a lot of confusion around that so right now. So much confusion around that. I really, yeah, that is huge, huge, huge. And I really drew strength from the women at my birth. Like physically it was coming to me from them and the comfort that I had when in the moments when I thought to myself, like, this is absolutely insane. I can't do this, which I think every woman thinks at some point in her labor, it's like a built-in part of it. I, by having them there and thinking to myself, like they did this, they gave birth in power in their homes. I can do this too. Like this woman did it. This woman did it. This woman did it. All of the women in this room have done it. I can do it. And absolutely. When women hire us to be at their births, they want us to speak up and say that to them when they're in their moment of doubt. I see you, you are so strong and you are doing it. 
let me help you to the bathroom. Which is why it's so, and part of why it's so broken now is that women are going to strange places with men they do not know and there's no one to hold that torch for them. There's no, you know, like a stranger man in a in a white coat that's so important, you know, like he's your guide. He's the thing between your legs. Like, come yeah. on. I mean, you deserve better. My God. So much better. You know, you deserve the story that Kate just told. That there's these women circling around, taking care of you and your partner and singing to you and rubbing you and there to look you in your eyes when you need it. And also there to melt into the back room, back of the room as you turn your back and do your work. Like it just, it's, you know, your story is so beautiful and so like perfect. And it, it also is, is bringing me like this just epic heartache. Mm that that is just not what most women yeah. know you know and 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 of course that's why we need to tell your story and that's why it needs to be lifted because it's such a i hope it will serve as such a deep like remembering of what birth can be and what a circle of women can be and what you know what like you said you know because of the birth work and because of the work you've done you know, it, the inside out work you've done as a birth attendant, how that was such an integrated way of setting you up for the birth experience you had. I mean, it is just this continuum. Totally. It is a continuum. And I do think it's hard if a woman is just coming to the idea of stepping outside of the system in some way and living sovereignly and um, taking responsibility for her decisions only when she gets pregnant. It's, I think, a harder journey because it is... I mean, yeah, that's a, a big learning curve. learning curve on a limited amount of time while there's lots of other stuff going on, but that personal work, doing that personal work throughout life is all going to contribute to having the beautiful birth. Once we've confronted our shadow sides, when we know ourselves better, when we can admit what we need help with, what we need for comfort, right. um, and practicing centering yourself yes. and, you know, putting <laughs> yourself first and these forbidden, yes. forbidden, forbidden concepts. concepts or setting aside the money to just hire the help that we want. Even that is such a huge leap for so many people, you know? Um, but yeah, I just was like, okay, I'm going to have to save up this amount of money in this amount of time. Cause that's the care and the help that I need. So we make it happen you know, like centering ourselves as being important enough and worthy enough of that care, our fantasies. I think Mm -hmm. our fantasies are really like where we need to be moving towards here. Totally. Mm. (sighs) So good. Anything else you want to say or share before we close? Um, I guess just how grateful I am to have had a circle of women welcomed me in when I was a young birth keeper and I was disenchanted with the system and I was saying, no, I'm not doing it anymore. To hear that call back into this work and then to be received by a circle of experienced birth attendants who were generous with their knowledge and treated me mm-hmm. as an equal and asked what my opinion was and who I could call on the phone and ask questions when I was starting to attend births on my own that was so meaningful and special. And I hope 
I hope that every birth keeper on their journey can find that support circle in some way in person or virtually online, you know, like the private members group is really great for that. The radical birth keeper calls are a really mm -hmm. awesome way to start having those debriefing circles. If we don't have the women face to face in our lives who we can talk to about that stuff. And yeah. Yeah. We can recreate our circles in lots totally. of different ways. Sisterhood is important along this journey of remembering all of these deep, women's folk arts? Well, it's imperative. I don't actually think you can come to completion with it without it. So many women contact me and say, I was totally alone until I heard you talk, until I found the podcast, until I started paying attention to you guys. I had all these same thoughts, but I never heard anybody say them too. And so what happens in that connection point when somebody, you know, when a woman out there is floating around thinking she's alone in this way of thinking and then hears other women around the world um, saying the same stuff, like that is a spark of sisterhood that normalizes and gives so much permission and love and support to each other. Um, yeah, I mean, it can just look so many different ways, but it's, it's, it's absolutely mm -hmm. critical. Mm -hmm. And embracing those women who we find inspiring, like the elders in these lines of work, they, they're not extinct. They still exist. <laughs> they're still out there. They're like kind of living myths at this point and are being erased, but um, honoring them and learning they're from them and buying their books and, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, getting in touch with them to learn, I think is so valuable and preserving that knowledge. I see a bright mm. future with all of that. Well, thank you so much for all that you shared today. It was a beautiful, beautiful thank time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for today, everyone. Join us next week for another episode of the Free Birth Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And remember, your body, your choice. Lots of love.